This episode contains some very violent information, especially about crimes towards children. Listener discretion advised. Thanks. Come gather around the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. Well, welcome to the month of October. Here we are. Ghost story month. That's right. It's time for the big countdown to Halloween. Uh, this week, I am doing the very famous and very overdone murder mystery, the Velisca Axe Murder House. Well, I've never heard of it. <laughs> Can't be that overdone. It's pretty overdone. I've been avoiding this story for the sheer reason that it has been done to death. Pun intended. <laughs> However, it is a good story and it definitely has a paranormal element to it. So here we go. And it'll have a holly twist. It will. Oh, it will. A, a special flavor of holly. A special flavor of holly. I like that. <laughs> okay, buckle up, Carol. Here we go. I'm, I'm ready. Okay. On June 9th, 1912, the Moore family that consisted of parents Josiah and Sarah Moore and their four kids, 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Mary Catherine, 7-year-old Arthur, and 5-year-old Paul, as well as two neighbor girls, 8-year-old Ina Stillinger and 12-year-old Lena Stillinger, were found murdered in their country home in Villisca, Iowa, by way of axe. Their murders were so gruesome that the whole town of Villisca has been forever known as the home of the axe murder house. Because the murders were never officially solved, the story has gone down in infamy and the house still sits as a tourist trap for all those who seek to see the place where the mass murder happened. On the night of Sunday, June 8, 1912, the Moore family went to a church service called the Children's Day Program at the Presbyterian Church that the Moores attended. Sarah Moore had worked very hard to get the event put together, so the entire family was there in support. The service started at 8 p.m. and ended at 9.30 p.m. The family then congregated with the other attendees outside, saying their goodnights. That is when Mary Catherine Moore asked her parents if her two friends, Ina and Lena Stillinger, could spend the night with them at their farm. The two girls were in attendance at the Children's Day program, but they didn't want to walk home alone in the dark. So Josiah used the phone at the church to call the girls' parents to see if that would be okay. The girls' parents were not at home, but their older sister was. She told Josiah she would let her folks know where the girls were going to stay. After the phone call, the Moore family left the church, walking down the dirt road to their own home. Along the way to the Moore residence, one of the girls said she saw a man in the trees watching them walk by. Ew. The rest of the family just shrugged this off and continued to their house. The next morning, the Moore's next-door neighbor, Mary Peckham, was out hanging her laundry at 5 a.m. is what I heard. Okay, that's, that's crazy, crazy early. Yeah. But she noticed that the Moors had not woken up yet, as their usual morning routine would be to get up and feed the chickens right away. She wasn't too concerned until 7 a.m., when there was still no movement from the house. So she went over and knocked on their door and even called out to them, but it was deadly silent. Concerned, she went over to their chicken coop and let out the Moore's chickens. 
Then she went inside her house and called up Ross Moore, Josiah's brother. She told him that his brother and the rest of the family had not come out of their house yet, and she was concerned that something was wrong. This is why it's good to have nosy neighbors. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, And their houses for being out on, like on a farm were relatively close together. I mean, yeah, they're pretty close like together. Kind of like almost like a neighborhood. Yeah. A little later, Ross showed up at his brother's home, and he and Mary circled the house trying to see inside. All of the windows were covered. Ross knocked on the door and called to his brother, but there was no reply. Finally, Ross produced a key that he had for their house. He unlocked the door, and he and Mary slowly entered the home, calling to the family. They heard nothing. Then Ross entered the downstairs bedroom where the two Stillinger girls had spent the night. That is when he realized that something was very, very wrong. The bed was draped in a blood-soaked sheet with two lumped figures underneath it. There was blood splatter on the headboard and the walls. As Ross looked around the room, he could see that all the windows, mirrors, glass, and anything else that had a reflection was covered by clothing or drapery. He slowly backed out of the room and looked at Mary. The two of them hastily retreated to her home, where Ross called the hardware store in town. He told the hardware store employee, who answered the phone, to run across the street to the town marshal's office, whose name was Henry Hank Horton, and tell him to get to the Moore family farm right away. Apparently, the town marshal didn't have a phone. <laughs> it's kind of weird. That is strange. <laughs> Horton soon, the marshal Horton soon arrived at the Moore farm and started walking through the house, taking in the gruesome scene. He found an uneaten plate of food on the kitchen table next to a pot of bloody water. He made note that all of the mirrors and windows were covered and that the house appeared to be ransacked. He discovered the axe leaning against the wall in the guest bedroom. It had been wiped partially clean. He found a four pound slab of bacon wrapped in cloth sitting huh? next to the axe for what purpose he wasn't sure. When he pulled back the sheet that covered the two little Stillinger girls, he found that Lena was hanging a third out of the bed. Her underwear had been removed and her nightgown had been pushed up above her hips. Oh. Her sister Ina was on the other side of the bed with her butt pointed towards the edge of the bed. Horton replaced the sheet. Filled with dread, he slowly ascended the stairs to the upstairs of the home. When he arrived upstairs, he found the Moore family. They were in their beds, all dead and covered in blood. Sarah Moore, in particular, was gashed badly in the face with chop marks from the blade of the axe. The rest of the family were disfigured from the blunt end of the axe. The ceiling above Sarah and Josiah's bed had axe marks on it, indicating that the axe had gotten swung so high and so forcefully that it damaged the ceiling above them. This told Horton that the killer had been in a crazed frenzy during the attacks. He could see that the parents' heads were struck at least 20 to 30 times. Horton was overwhelmed by the scene. Who would have thought this could happen in his little town of Aliska? He decided that he needed more help. He came down the stairs and went outside and told Ross he would be going back to town for reinforcements. However, when he returned to town, the overwhelm of what he had witnessed was too much for him to hold inside, and he started telling the townspeople what he had seen. Soon people from all over the town of Aliska were showing up at the farm to see the gruesome scene for themselves. Oh, no. At least 100 people came through the house to see the bodies, resulting in damage to the crime scene. The news traveled through Aliska like a lightning bolt, and soon the town was closing up shop in the middle of the day so that people could go home and lock themselves inside, hiding from the monster that could have done this. Once Horton was able to reach out for help with the case, more police showed up and started the investigation. 
Initially, they thought that the little girls downstairs had been sexually assaulted based on the provocative way that they were found. But ultimately, they ruled that out where they found no signs of sexual trauma to their bodies. Hmm. However, the baking and the towel was troubling, and some police believe that the baking could have been used as a masturbation tool as the killer looked at Lena's naked body. The investigators also concluded that the killer most likely went into the parents' room twice to continue to their... I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Bacon can be used as a masturbation <laughs> tool. I'm sorry, I'm a little slow, but I, I just have to back up to that point. Well, it was uncooked raw bacon, so it was kind of a greasy ball of meat if you will. Okay. I'm not familiar with greasy bacon uncooked yet. So. Yeah. So it can be easily made into a... Okay, enough. Okay. I, can't. <laughs> I got it. Okay, okay carry on. <laughs> oh my gosh. The investigators also concluded that the killer most likely went into the parents' room twice to continue their killing spree specifically on them. They also found two finished cigarette butts in the attic, which led them to believe that the killer was waiting for them there when the family returned from the church program. Mm -hmm. The town was aghast at the murders, and everyone had a theory about who was behind them. The suspects were many and included the following. Iowa Senator Frank Jones. Oh, wow. Reverend George Kelly. Transient Andy Sawyer. Local resident William Blackie Mansfield. And murderer Henry Lee Moore, no relationship to the Moore family. Also during this time, axe murders were happening all over towns along the Southern Pacific Railroad lines, with entire families being murdered with a blunt end of an axe, and some of the murder scenes even having the mirrors and windows covered, just like in Villisca. Oh. This led some to believe there was a serial killer on the loose, mm -hmm. even though back in those days they didn't call them serial killers, they just said madman or something. Yeah, crazy man on the loose. Several months after the Velisca murders, a man named Henry Lee Moore, who was one of the suspects I just mentioned, mm -hmm. was arrested for the axe murder of his mother and grandmother in Columbia, Missouri. They believe that Henry Lee Moore may have been responsible for as many as 22 axe murders across the country. Oh, God. However, he had an alibi for the night of the Velisca murders and was ruled out of the case. He ended up serving 36 years in prison for killing his mother and his grandmother. Then there was transient Andy Sawyer, who was also investigated. He was turned in by his boss after his co-workers started complaining about his strange behavior. Sawyer was working on the railroad, and after the murders were discovered, he spoke about them nonstop. He even admitted to being in Villisca the night of the murder, but said he left town so he wasn't seen as a suspect. <laughs> well, that's suspicious. The other weird thing about Andy was that he always slept with his clothes on and with his hands gripping his axe, <laughs> which is also weird. <laughs> his boss turned him into the authorities, but they eventually ruled him out as they believed he had been in jail the night of the murders. Then there was Frank Jones. Frank Jones was the next possible suspect and the one in which most people in Villisca had their money on. Frank was a business owner, and at one time, Josiah had been in his employment. However, when Josiah had asked Frank for a raise, Frank denied him one, which angered Josiah enough to quit working for Frank and to start his own competing business. This angered Frank, and the two of them became sworn enemies. Mm. To make matters worse, there was a vicious rumor around town that Josiah was having an affair with Frank's daughter-in-law. Oh, geez. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so really bad blood. Yeah. Frank hated Josiah so much that whenever he would see him in town, he would cross the street to the other side so he didn't have to walk past him. The scuttlebutt around Villisca was that Frank hired William Blackie Mansfield to kill the Moors. There was no proof that this was true. However, 
Two years later, Blackie was brought in as a suspect in the Moore's murders after he was accused of murdering his own wife, infant baby, and mother and father-in-law with an axe in Paola, Kansas. Well, that's weird. Yeah. That his How many entire axe murders were there back then? Called? A lot. A lot. Yeah, I thought it was just Oregon. Remember we had all those stories where the people were yeah. killing people with axes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently it's a thing. Mm-hmm. A detective from Kansas thought that Blackie was responsible for the Moors too, as the crime scene at Blackie's family's house was nearly identical to that of the Moors. Blackie's family had been bludgeoned with the blunt end of the axe, the axe had been wiped clean, and the mirrors and windows had been covered in clothes. However, Blackie produced an alibi proving he was out of town the night of the Moore murders. Now, maybe he did have an alibi, but part of me is like, I don't know. That's a lot of, you know, dots that have been connected. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if this alibi lied for him, so... Finally, several years after the murders, the only man who would ever stand trial for the murders was arrested. Reverend George Kelly was a traveling preacher from England. He and his wife had been in attendance at the children's program at the Villisca Presbyterian Church the night before the murders. Kelly was known for being a bit off. He was a sexual deviant who wrote lewd letters to women and had been caught as a peeping Tom on many occasions. And this is the reverend? This is the reverend. He was clearly mentally ill and very strange. The morning of June 9th, 1912, Kelly boarded a train in Villisca around 5 a.m. While on the train, he happened to mention to a few witnesses that the Moore family had been murdered the night before. The problem was the bodies hadn't been discovered yet. When the discovery of the bodies became public knowledge, Kelly became very interested in the story and even inserted himself into the investigation. He wrote letters to the authorities and to the family members seeking out details about the case. Kelly even traveled back to Villisca and with the approval of the police, helped them search the Moore home. As Kelly continued to talk about the murders, the police became more and more suspicious of him. Finally, one of the investigators wrote a letter to Kelly and asked him what he really did know about the murders. Kelly claimed that he had been walking by the Moore house the night of the murders. He said he could hear the thud of the axe and that the killer had even stopped and stepped out onto the porch when another couple was walking by. He also said that Sarah Moore had sat up in bed before she was killed. The police also discovered that Kelly had taken a bloodstained shirt to have it laundered just after the murders. With all of those details, and the fact that Kelly knew about the murders before they were even discovered, the police decided they had their man, and they arrested him. Kelly was put in jail the summer of 1917 and kept there while many men interrogated him about the night the Moors were murdered. Kelly did confess, but ultimately he recanted his confession. He was finally put on trial, which resulted in a hung jury. He was then tried again, but the prosecution did not include his confession in the second trial. He was eventually acquitted. The jury decided that the Reverend did not fit their idea of who the killer was. Reverend Kelly was a quiet man who was only five foot two and 119 pounds. What a tiny tiny little man. How on earth could a man so small commit such a horrendous act on so many people? And that makes sense. Like you're looking at this tiny guy. Mm -hmm. This guy murdered six people by himself. I would, or eight people by himself. That was eight people. Died. Yeah, I would do a thorough investigation of who likes bacon in <laughs> the town. <laughs> well, if he was a sexual deviant and mentally ill, that would make sense. Mm-hmm. So after Kelly's trial, the case went cold and was never officially solved until now. When Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi of the Dead Files oh, got to town. <laughs> it wouldn't be yeah. Halloween without Amy. A Dead Files. From the Dead Files. That's right. 
So here is another classic episode of the paranormal show, The Dead Files, when psychic medium Amy <laughs> Allen reti- and retired New York City homicide detective Steve DeShoffey pair up to investigate their hauntings. For those of you who don't know or haven't seen The Dead Files, Amy will walk the property at night and report back what she sees with her psychic senses, while Steve interviews the living and finds out what their paranormal experiences have been and digs into the actual history of the place. At the end, Steve and Amy sit down with the homeowners to tell them what they discovered and what they can do about the ghosts in their house. In the beginning of their investigation of the Velisca Axe Murder House, Steve interviews a tour guide for the Axe Murder House named John, who happens to live in the house next door where neighbor Mary Peckham had lived. He tells Steve that they have experienced paranormal activity not just in the Axe Murder House, but at Mary's house as well. In fact, the paranormal activity is so bad in the upstairs of Mary's house that he moved his whole family downstairs. He said that his friends have seen a woman in his house, Mary's house, with a distorted face and has scared them so bad they won't come back. And he said his daughter has seen her too, and her his daughter calls her Hattie. <laughs> kind of cute. That's kind of cute. John, in a freaky way. In a freaky way. John said in the axe murder house, he has heard noises and growling coming from the downstairs bedroom where the Stillinger girls were murdered. Another tour guide Steve interviewed named Christy said she did not like to be upstairs in the axe murder house because she hears noises and she has been touched inappropriately. Steve also interviews the owner of the Velisca axe murder house, a woman named Martha Lynn. Martha indicates that she and her husband bought the house because of its historic value, and they renovated it back to how it would have looked in 1912. Martha believes this has stirred up the paranormal activity in the home, as there were never reports of paranormal activity before they renovated the property. And as we know, that can certainly stir up paranormal activity. Oh, yeah. What Amy discovered during her walk was very interesting as well as heartbreaking. She said that the whole family is still there trapped between the axe murder house and Mary Peckham's house, but that they like to go to Mary's house and hang out in the upstairs. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's very interesting. Amy said that the little Stillinger girls are still in the bedroom where they were murdered. She said one of them likes to interact with people by jumping out and trying to scare them or growl at them, which is what Mm. John had said he'd heard from that room. Growling. John had told Steve that he heard those sounds. When Amy goes over to Mary Peckham slash John's house, she said that there is a very angry female spirit there. She is severely disfigured. She believes she is the spirit of Sarah Moore. She said Sarah is filled with rage. She is angry because she let the men into the house that night. But Amy hears that the husband, Josiah, is really the one to blame for the situation. Amy confirms that Sarah is doing creepy stuff around John's house and intentionally haunting them. Amy says that Sarah is angry and wants the living to feel the same suffering that she feels. As for that night, Amy is also able to confirm that there was indeed a man watching them from the trees as they walked home from church, and he was one of the killers. Yes, just one. Amy indicates that four men were involved. Four. Four men. She said it was some kind of deal that went wrong and the men were there for revenge. She believes that both the Senator, Frank Jones, and the Reverend, George Kelly, were involved in the murders. She also got that not everyone was supposed to die. Amy said that everyone in the house was trapped and chaos ensued. She said fear, panic, and pain overtook the whole family. She can see Sarah huddled in the corner holding one of the children, hysterically crying and saying, How can you let them do this? Aren't they your friends? Lena Stillinger is dragged across the floor by her leg, but she is confused because the man who is dragging her is a family friend and someone she knows quite well. 
Amy hears a man saying everything is going to be okay, but another man says there is nowhere to run. However, Amy also hears yet another man say, make sure they are dead. Make sure. Amy also describes one of the men as being angry, jealous, and crazy. She said he was a very religious man and that he was totally okay with these murders. In fact, he really enjoyed them. What? Amy described him as very short, a very little man who was quite thin. She had a sketch artist draw a picture of him. He looked exactly like Reverend George Kelly. Amy confirmed that the Reverend is still there haunting the house. Amy tells the group that one reason Sarah Moore is so angry is because the paranormal tours through the house are a sideshow and the victims are constantly reliving what happened to them in that house. These tours do not give them any peace. Amy tells the tour guide, John, to just stick to historical house tours and not paranormal tours so he doesn't constantly evoke the wrath of Sarah Moore. Amy told John he needs to be careful as Sarah is in a blind rage in the upstairs of his home and thinks that he deserves any misfortune that he gets. John feels bad about this and he cares a lot about what happened to this family, so he decides to stop doing the paranormal tours. After John stopped doing the paranormal tours, the Dead Files show indicated at the end that the paranormal activity has stopped in the home. And that is the Velisca axe murder story. I would think if I was the mother and I was angry, I don't know if I would have that much revenge on people because I think when you're on the other side, you don't necessarily hold on to your grudges. Yeah. So it could just be... Well, she hasn't also gone to the light or transitioned over to the other side. Mm-hmm. She's just spiritually stuck there. Or perhaps it is the um, the residue of the event has recorded on the yeah. house. That could be it too. And it's just picking up all the confusion and yeah. anger. But Amy is saying that they're still there. So And she would know the difference, But I would think, between recorded energy and an actual spirit. Mm-hmm. So she's saying, yeah, the family's still there, the little girls, the Stillinger girls are still there, and the reverend is still there. And he well, was only one awkward. of four. One of four, I know. I don't know if they run into each other at the house. but Yeah, I'd be like, <laughs> can you just stay up in the attic yeah, with your creepy. cigarettes yeah. and leave us creepy. to live creepy. in peace? Yeah. How would you navigate that? We're all trapped here. I would try to figure out how do I go to the light and get the fuck out of here. I don't want to relive my death state all the time. Like, that would be terrible. Yeah, I wonder if, like, they're supposed to, like, sit and talk out their feelings. And then once they repent and forgive each other, then they move on. I don't know. Sometimes they don't even know that they're dead. And if you think about the way that that family died... It was so quick and so horrific Mm -hmm. that maybe they're just so stunned energetically that they don't even realize fully what's happened to them. Mm -hmm. So they can't, they haven't really fully acknowledged or accepted the fact that they're dead and they don't know what to do. And they're still participating in visiting their neighbor, right? Yeah. They go over to Mary's Mm -hmm. house. They like her house better. Probably because that's where it feels safer for them. Yeah. Why would you want to stay in the house you were murdered in? You wouldn't. Especially like that. Mm Mm-mm. I bet they're living more at Mar- at Mary's house. I think they are. And then are. the killers are in Moore's house, which Maybe. would explain the difference in energy yeah. that Amy feels. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. I might watch that show now. You should. It's pretty cool because mm-hmm. for the longest time, it's been a cold case, but it sounds like they had the right people. I think Blackie 
was mm-hmm. probably also involved, but he somehow got an alibi to clear him. So that would mean that the senator, the reverend, and Blackie, um, maybe all three of those guys were involved. And the reason I think Blackie's involved is because of the way his family was murdered. Very similar to the yeah. way their family, his the, the Moore family was murdered. I think the reverend was just a fucking mental case and likes killing people. But they still have it. It's one of the creepy, creepier things you can see in the state of Iowa. If you ever go on a vacation there, um, you go to Villisca. They have tours, historical tours, hopefully not paranormal tours anymore. But you can go see where it happened. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's an old story. And it's, yeah, it's a good story. I mean, it's a fascinating story, but it's a horrific and ugly and grotesque story, too. Yeah, so today I'm going to speak about a very haunted place. Mm. Its location, 14 West 10th Street, New York City, Mm. nicknamed the House of Death. Mm, The House of Death. It's nicknamed this because the rumor has it the property has seen up to 22 deaths in the home. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That's Mm -hmm. a lot more than my eight. But there are a lot of bodies in this episode. Yes. Built in the 1850s, it is a brownstone townhouse nestled alongside many similar homes on West 10th Street in New York City. Just across the street is Washington Square Park. The park was used as a burial ground previously, and from time to time, some will uncover a part of a wooden casket or other reminders of the previous residents of the park. So that's kind of creepy to find stuff occasionally. That is creepy. The 14th West townhome was occupied by high society members, including James Borman Johnson and his wife, who was one of the founders of the Metropolitan and Broadway Underground Railroad system, which later became the modern subway system. The house was known as number 14, and it seemed many of the wealthy owners only stayed for a short period of time, including a temporary occupancy of Mark Twain. Oh, cool. Also known as Samuel Clemens for about a year. I think that's cool. I just did one after your story with uh, Samuel Clemens. That's great. Mm -hmm. There were reports of Mark Twain's spirit lingering, even though he did not die on the property. There is a plaque on the building that supports this fact with his name residing there from 1900 to 1901. Twain also complained of the bad energy in the home and was at a troubled time in his life. He was writing and, despite his later fame, was dealing with depression due to his financial problems. He was hoping to turn a profit as he was close to bankruptcy. Twain wrote of his experience during his time in the home. One night, Twain noticed a log from the fireplace wiggling back and forth and lift a bit off the ground. Startled by the movement, he grabbed his gun and shot at it, thinking it was a rat. That'll take care of it. (laughs) Yeah. Upon a closer look, there were no visible drops of blood or signs of rats, and no other tenants of the home ever reported issues with rats. Now, we don't know exactly the starting point for all the tragedy and paranormal activity, but it seemed to have started with Fred Andrew, who was a well-known cyclist in the late 1800s. Andrew often rode his bike around in the neighborhood, but one day on August 9th, 1897, Andrew had a collision with a young boy who was walking along a street. The boy broke his leg and Andrew was arrested for his careless behavior. A woman and her daughter who moved into the home in the early 1930s claimed to have seen a man dressed in a white suit and sitting by the window. He announced himself as Clemens and complained about having a problem and needing to sort it out, after which he just vanished. 
Other reports have seen Twain climbing up and down the steps of the townhome, but there are no reasons documented for anything other than his depression from being broke that would keep him haunting the place. Maybe the afterlife requires a rental deposit to stay there, and those who can't pay it stay back on Earth. <laughs> maybe uh, that's yeah. why. Yeah, maybe. maybe that's why pharaohs were buried with their treasure and stuff. Yeah, maybe that's why. Like I've come to pay the ferryman. Yeah, that's right. Or isn't it to cross the river sticks mm-hmm. you have to pay the ferryman? Mm-hmm. The large home was then converted to apartments in the late 1930s. Ten apartments in total. That's a large townhome. That is. An actress and writer by the name of Jan Byrant Bartell moved into one of the top floor apartments with her daughter and husband. She was also a natural sensitive and claimed to be psychic. On her immediate arrival, she reported feeling spirits in the home and saw a dark menacing shadow creeping out into the hall and often hovered behind her. At first, it seemed just little disturbances. The dog would bark aggressively at a living room chair and she would occasionally hear footsteps walking around. Then it became something else. She would feel something bump into her and brush against her neck. Sometimes she would find random piles of rotten food in the apartment that did not belong to them. Gross. Oh, yeah. They're going to have rats now for sure. Yeah. The rotting stench and accompanied piles of food seemed to point to a filth that originated from under the floorboards. Gross. Before they would clean it up, it would suddenly disappear and then reappear later without warning. Eventually, she began seeing a full body apparition of a hulking man which out of curiosity, she touched at once, describing the feeling as if moving through a cold, damp cloud or fog. Huh. Bartell wrote of her experience, quote, I could feel my fingers freeze at the tips. They were numb and yet they tingled. In the split second between contact and recoil, the scent came, fragile and languorous and sweet, unbearably, cloyingly sweet, end quote. Eventually, Bartell was overcome with so much anxiety that she called a medium and paranormal investigator to help with the situation. The medium sensed three separate spirits, that of a cat, a woman, and a baby. There's a cat? Mm-hmm. Aww. While in a trance, the medium had the woman take over, who spoke of her past life living in the time of the Civil War and losing her husband and child, and who was still grieving. The spirit said she was 19 years old, named Rini Mallison. The session turned quickly aggressive when the medium demanded that the woman leave the house. Rini screamed, never. I will never leave here. This is my home. Hmm. This session perhaps helped to clarify to Bartell that someone other than her could see or sense the spirits, but it also might have stirred up even more activity. The medium also described seeing a woman in white, which some people say is seen wearing a dress or a nightgown, walking through doors and flickering light switches on and off. This ghost is the one that is most widely reported from those who have resided in the home. Bartella kept a notebook of her notes recording every incident, but after 11 years of stress, the hauntings disturbed her so much she eventually had to move out. Wow. How many years? 11 years. Wow. But despite leaving 14 West 10th Street, she was still plagued by a malevolent presence. Perhaps the spirit followed her since she only moved to a residence just adjacent to her old flat. (laughs) So she wasn't that stressed out. Couldn't be that scared. Mm. Jan felt the house was ruining her health and that the evil spirit had a hold on her, following her wherever she went. I guess if you think that, then it really doesn't matter where you go, right? 
She started to begin the process of writing a book about her experience, but in 1973, Jan died under mysterious circumstances. It was thought possibly a suicide, leaving her manuscript unfinished. Hmm. Her husband and friends were able to finish the book from her extensive notes and had it published the following year under the title Spindrift, Spray from a Psychic Sea. We do know of a reported homicide which took place in the home in 1987. A high-powered attorney, Joel Steinberg, and his partner, Hayda Nussbaum, lived there and was accused of murdering six-year-old Lisa Nussbaum. Mm. Joel and Hayda were foster care placement advisors who helped arrange for permanent adoptions in exchange of money for kids needing a family. It was later found out that Lisa and her young baby brother, Mitchell, were never adopted out and were living as illegal children of the couple. Hmm. Hayda called for police on November 2nd, 1987, after finding Lisa unconscious on the floor. Joel, while high on cocaine, violently hit Lisa, and after a three-day fight for her life, she died from trauma to her head in the hospital. Oh, wow. Mitchell, her brother, was found in unclean conditions with some signs of abuse tethered to his playpen. Hayda was also covered in bruises and agreed to testify against Joel in order to avoid the charges of co-conspirator. She testified that Joel would often abuse them and that Joel had a terrible drug addiction. Sure, blame his, it all on Joel. And <laughs> yeah, his abuse and volatile personality only got worse after they moved into the home. Steinberg was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 8 to 25 years. He served time at Southport Correctional Facility until September 30th, 2004. Mitchell Steinberg eventually reunited with his biological mother. And there are questions about the malevolent spirits surrounding the role in Lisa's death. Speculation about perhaps negative energies influenced Steinberg's actions, much like the case of Amityville murders and their haunting. Did he claim that? Did he claim mm -hmm. he was hearing voices and stuff? I think he was, mm -hmm. like, saying that he was just, didn't know why he was so angry all the time. Well, and, cocaine can mm -hmm. certainly fuel your rage. Yeah. You know, but... And it could uh, have just further produced his need for the addiction also. Yeah, true. So, yeah. who knows? Um but Steinberg's life after prison, it's said that after serving 16 years, it's claimed he's living a low-profile life as a construction worker in Harlem. So, oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. Just well, really sure no other crime. Life. Yeah. yeah, because what, he, what he did is he ruined her life. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. A notable witness to the paranormal activity is photographer Dennis, I don't have a last name, who says he lived across the street from the building. He states that after he moved in, Strange items kept moving around or disappearing. He claims that one day as he was browsing in the Strand bookstore, which is a local bookstore, mm -hmm. a particular book came dislodged and fell into a space. It was Bartell's book, Spindrift, Spray from the Psychic Sea. That's weird. Not so weird. That is very weird. He also stated that people who he has photographed in his home studio feel anxious and often cut the session short, leaving very quickly as if they are spooked for some reason. I can make some jokes here, but I refrain. <laughs> Dennis said that he also keeps losing that book from Bartell, even though he's purchased several copies of it. No matter what happens, it keeps disappearing. Weird. Mm -hmm. Very strange. Yeah. Somebody doesn't want him to read about the accounts. I guess. So there are paranormal experts who have investigated the house. However, there are residents still living in the building, so not everybody can just go through it. 
Encounters with spirits are documented by experts who have reported, you know, picking up activity, you know, the voices coming from the home. And people who pass by do report feeling really weird as they even just approach the home or cross in front of it. So, right. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't find any proof of the other, you know, 21, 20 deaths in the home. I'd like to say that that's a lot of deaths, but we do remember it is built in the 1850s and that was a natural thing to die at home back yeah, in those right. days. So, yeah, yeah. And if, you know, it was rented out as apartments, think about how many people might have died even then just of natural causes. Right, so, for sure. But it's just, um, you know, the violence, it has seen violence and yeah. enough stories. So, yeah. Huh. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for that story. Oh, yeah. So it is the house of death. The house of death. The house of death. Oh, cool. Well, thank you, Carol. That was a great story. Oh, you're welcome. We appreciate it. Well, that's... I loved your story, too. Thank you. That's week one of our October... Countdown. Countdown to Halloween with scary stories. Go uh, watch some scary movies. Do Let it. Let us know what you like. Eat some candy. All right. Talk we'll to you guys you later. Week. Bye. Them specifically. Now, this I wrote this weird. Um, to continue their killing spree specifically on them. Why can't I say this fucking sentence? First of all, I have an extra word in here that I don't need. I'm going to try it one more time, Josh, and then you're going to have to piece it together. <laughs> Martha indicates that she and her husband bought the house because it's well, duh. Martha indicates that she and her husband bought the house because it no, I can't. What's wrong with me? It's a brownstone townhouse townhome. Steinberg was convicted of manslaughter and since <laughs> he found a four pound slab of bacon wrapped in cloth sitting huh? next to the axe bacon as the flames die down do remain undaunted though all hitchhikers are ghosts and all dolls are definitely haunted hey guys be sure to follow us on instagram our handle is at fireside phantoms if you have a spooky story you would like to share with us, send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com and you may hear it on a future episode.